Hello, I'm Russell Davis, joined on the Stairway to the Stars this time by a one-time shooting star who settled into the firmament remarkably quickly and set about reshaping the course of modern comedy straight away. Matt Lucas, actor, writer, singer, and occasional focus of controversy without really seeking it, I think. I won't say welcome, Matt. Even my son, Matt, is sick of that one. He's only uh. ten. But uh, welcome just the same. For once, I know where you're coming from because you were brought up in Stanmore. Yes. The top end of London, just like Theo Walcott. That's right. Just Well, he was born there because his dad was on the RAF base. That's ah, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. A hero of the Arsenal. Your team, of course. But not the nearest team to you in Samoa. Those others are a bit nearer, aren't they? The Tottenhamites. Oh, I don't know there'll be that much in it. Um, Watford are probably the nearest. Oh, that's true, yes. Or yeah. Boreham Wood. So how did Arsenal happen? Arsenal happened for me because... Hello, viewers and <laughs> listeners. I feel like I should say hello. Hello, the listeners. Uh, or viewers, if you're just staring at your radio. A lot of people do. Yeah. <laughs> My late father, um, when he was about 14 or 15 years old, um, uh, had a terrible accident on his push bike. And he went over the handlebars. And uh, he nearly lost a leg. It was a terrible accident. And the doctor who fixed his leg also happened to be the doctor to the Arsenal team. And while my dad was recuperating over a year or so, he used to give my dad free tickets. So he became a fan and passed that on to my brother and myself. And when they moved to the Emirates Stadium, you could get a little commemorative stone, you know, as fans, you could get a little stone. And uh, so I got one with my dad's name, my brother's name and my name on. So you were there in time to be a regular attender at the old Highbury then? Oh, yeah. So I first went to Highbury when I was about seven in 1981 and have been pretty regular since. And in spite of your international travels, are you one of these gooners who keeps in touch and insists Very on seeing much. the game? Yeah, I mean, when I, I split my time between the US and the UK now, and when I'm here, I go to as many matches as possible. And when I'm there, I watch them pretty much live. NBC now show all of the Premiership games. It's wonderful. It so happens I know Stanmore quite well. My in-laws live there. And while it's a comfortable suburb, isn't it, it doesn't give off a funny vibe. It's a bit staid. Well, it's one of those places where you're 10 miles from the centre of London, so you're sort of so near and so far. And then when I was about 13, 14, I was considered old enough to go on the London Underground on my own or on buses on my own. And then suddenly um, weekends and holidays became about going into the centre of town. So I didn't feel too far away, actually. To yeah. be honest with you, it felt okay. But it was one of the things that David Williams and myself bonded over because he grew up in Banstead in Surrey. And again, we were just about close enough to get into London of yeah. a weekend, you know, yeah. an hour, hour and a quarter. End of the line, but on the line. End of the line, but on the line, basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Your mother was actually the secretary of the synagogue where my wife's parents' family went. And there you probably go. still do. She was so the, we're almost related. Yeah, she was the assistant secretary there for 20 years. You did the whole bit. I mean, Hebrew lessons, bar mitzvah, all yeah, the thing. Hebrew yeah, Hebrew lessons, bar mitzvah. I was uh, this thing called Chatan Torah after uh, my bar mitzvah. We are uh, reformed Jews. People in my family are still pretty observant, I have to say. I suppose I myself am more of a secular Jew these days. Mm. Um very happy to be Jewish, considered Jewish. My own personal belief in God isn't really there anymore, mm. but I'm not aggressive or dismissive towards those people that have it. In some ways, I'm probably envious. Yes. Um, but I also think it would be disingenuous to fake it. I kind of think if there was a God and you faked your belief, that would be worse than not believing at all. But no, I'm not agnostic. I am atheist, to be honest. 
What about you? But uh, atheist too, I'm yeah. afraid. Yes, yes. But I still like churches and hymns and stuff and the music and yeah, that's it. I like the, the words of the old prayers and stuff, the Old Testament. I mean, it's all there's something powerful com- stuff. But. It's powerful. There's something comforting about the ritual and tradition. I think having, uh, without going into too much detail, having had reason to grieve a couple of times for people that I've lost. The Jewish way of dealing with death is quite different, it seems, to maybe the your Church of England way of dealing with death. And that was something that I kind of feel I prefer in some ways because uh, I think in Church of England when somebody dies very close to you, you sort of leave them alone for a week, don't you? Just let them get on with it, give them their privacy. Mm. Whereas actually in the Jewish religion, you do something quite opposite. You pretty much get bombarded when somebody dies by people, people you know very well, people you don't know very well, people who want to show their respect. And you have a a massive trail of visitors for about a week. And it's pretty exhausting. And it is overwhelming. And sometimes you're appreciative of it and sometimes you rail against it. But it gives you a sense of support and acknowledgement and all of those things. And then you get your time to sort of... um, reflect and, and grieve, really. But the funeral's a bit quick for some people. I funeral's mean, are very over quick. and gone. I mean. Yeah, I mean, my father died on a Wednesday and uh, he died of a heart attack and there was a post-mortem nonetheless and he wasn't buried until the Sunday because you can't bury, for instance, on a uh, later on a Friday and you can't bury on a Saturday because it's a Sabbath. And it felt like an absolute age from Wednesday to Sunday was the longest, felt like the longest four days in, uh, of my life. And uh, the tradition is that you bury as quickly as you can. Somebody dies at 8 o'clock in the morning, you'll bury them at 2 that afternoon. But, you know, I think that goes back to just Judaism coming out of a very hot country. Yeah. It's hygiene, really. It was hygiene. There wasn't ice. Yeah. So you just did it as quickly as possible. But also, I think there was an idea that you shouldn't... Uh, dress death up. You leave the world as you come into it and uh, you should have a sparse funeral and you shouldn't say somebody passed away. People say you should say somebody died. Yes. You know, you don't want to live in a fantasy world where you think they're still there. Mm. So I think there's something bleak but very emphatic about just burying someone quickly. Yes. You know. Yes. Um, also, there are so many arguments to do with funerals and to just get it out of the way, get it done, yes. get it done. However, we do do a thing called a stone setting. Of course, a year later. Yeah, yeah, a year later. So that's when there's a bit more reflection and that officially ends the period of mourning, doesn't it? Yeah. I personally hate stone settings because you take one of the worst days of your life, the funeral, and you pretty much repeat it. Yes, it is. You go to the same place with the same people, you walk the same path. And although it signals the end of the period of mourning, we all know that the period of mourning doesn't ever really end when somebody close to you dies. But also, it's just traumatic. You take <laughs> you take the most traumatic elements of the most traumatic one of the most traumatic days of your life, and you just replay them over. Yeah. Um, I it, they have set me back in the past, actually, stone mm-hmm. settings. But I guess that's my hard luck because they're a necessary part of of grieving. Well, after that unexpectedly somber, yeah. somber subject, well, I think which is somber, it's give, not well, somber. No. It's fine to talk about. It. It's part of life, isn't well, it? Well, let's give our chops a rest and think about that because I think it was on the documentary they made about your part in 
they missed, which oh, we'll yes. come to. But you said, I think, that Oliver, the musical, made a great impression on Huge. you when you were really quite young. That must have been the screen version, was it? The 68 uh, movie? I'm pretty sure I saw the film at a very young age, but my first trip to the proper theatre, if you um, leave out things like pantomime, my first trip to the proper theatre was, uh, I'm pretty sure, to the Albury in about 1979, 1980, to watch Oliver, which I think, looking back, may well have starred Ron Moody, that production. Uh-huh. Supposedly a Jewish villain, which might have been bothersome, I don't know. It was too good a performance to feel like a villain, for one thing. Yeah, it was a much softer portrayal of a Jewish villain than the David Lean film, or indeed the novel it was taken from. Now, you wouldn't be quite the Matt Lucas we know and love if it hadn't been for something that must have seemed disastrous and disabling at the time, and that was the onset of the alopecia, the general loss of hair that gave you your look rather earlier than you would have wanted one at the age of, what, six? Six years old or my yeah. hair fell out. Yeah. yeah, and you've tantalised us over the years with several suggestions of why, but it's not easy to say, is it? Because it could have been a delayed reaction to a car Yeah, I found incident. that I've learned a little bit more about it or, or heard some slightly more likely theories recently when I was four years old, I was knocked down by a car on holiday in Portugal. And what I was always told was, oh, the shock made my hair fall out, the delayed reaction to the shock. And this was a theory that was espoused at the time. So, you know, you're six years old, you, you hear it, you accept it. And now it's been suggested, well, I'm atopic. You know, I'm one of those people with um, asthma and eczema and hay fever, one of those. One of those. Yeah. And um, so that I would have an overactive immune system and it would have been some manifestation of that that decided for whatever reason that hair was some kind of attack and therefore had to be um, fought against and got rid of. Yeah. Um, there's a great Gerard Hoffman line, which is, uh, my hair grows inwards nowadays. <laughs> Which uh, I tell children, you know, small children, when they point at me and say, you've got no hair. But actually, you've got no hair was something I heard, I wouldn't just say daily, but hourly, by the minute growing up from kids and even adults. But nowadays, being an adult, you know, I'm 40 next year and not having hair seems incredibly unremarkable, I have to say. Mm. Uh, makeup artists love me for it. Of course, you're so yeah. addable too, aren't you? Yeah. yeah, the hours David Williams would spend having those bald wigs put on. How lovely to meet somebody of your generation who does Gerard Hoffnung and you know, not only knows about him but can do him like that. I had this character called Sir Bernard Chumley that I yeah. used to do on the stand-up circuit that I came up with when I was 16 and it wasn't until I was about 19 at university that I heard the Hoffnung tapes and became obsessed and it was weird because although I would never ever proclaim to have the genius of Hoffnung and it is real genius for me and ironic, really, that he's, he's known more for uh, his illustrations and his music than his actual extraordinary comic monologues and dialogues. But I felt a real kinship. I felt like I'd stumbled upon, along with Vic and Bob, yes. um, uh, the, the comedy that uh, I knew I would love forever, in a way. And not that long ago, I played Hoffnung in a, in a Radio 3 play and have come to know Annette, his widow, as well, and I'm incredibly lucky because she gave me an original Hoffnung illustration, uh, which uh, is in my home. Which is that an instrumentalist? Yes, uh, it, it is. is. Yeah. And and yeah. Um, I'm incredibly lucky because they don't normally take anything out of the collection. Yeah. So I was really flattered by that. We were talking about wigs and prosthetics and stuff. Are you one of those performers who feels the character has suddenly arrived when you have got something on? 
Uh, um, sort of rather predictably, yes. Although the next thing I'm working on, ordinarily I would want to wear a lot of prosthetics because he's a 70-year-old man, or maybe he's a little older. But actually I'm starting to wonder maybe that I won't wear too many prosthetics when I play this character. It's my next scripted piece, which is being written at the moment and we're going to film late next summer uh, for BBC One. It's called Pompidou. And uh, it's a visual comedy. It's my attempt to do something a bit like Mr Bean. And um, actually, I'm thinking now probably not to bury myself under prosthetics for that one because on a practical level, just purely practical level, it adds another two, three, four hours to your day. So you just get very tired because filming days are long anyway. But more importantly, because I can put up with that, that's fine. More importantly, uh, I do think sometimes people's performances get buried under prosthetics and they should be used a bit like CGI to enhance and sometimes we completely transform and I think over the course of a whole series it would probably just be quite distracting Mm. to the viewer to see somebody in prosthetics. Um, Sometimes it can be done brilliantly. I remember uh, seeing Nicole Kidman in The Hours uh, as Virginia Woolf and The Nose was prosthetic, and it was... I mean, I'm sure they'd use CGI as well to smooth out the joints, but you you couldn't tell the difference. Yeah. It made her look very different. And um, for the first part of the film, you marvelled at it, and then you forgot about it, and then I think it did help. Yes. But sometimes, I think, too many prosthetics on the face, they sort of hide you a bit too much and reduce your performance, and you end up having to do something very, very broad in order to sort of battle with it. And they must um, tug at the musculature somehow too. I mean, yeah, it they affects your the, speech. And they stuff. can pull the face down a bit and, you know, I think they're brilliant when you need to use them, and I think maybe I got in the habit of using them too much. And as you say, if you've got to get to a film studio at 6 o'clock anyway, and it has to be 5 because you've got an oh, extra no, hour. Oh, no, it'll be more than that. I mean, I've been in the chair at 4.30 really? before. Really? And, you know, and also they can take... I mean, the Bubbles outfit, when we first put Bubbles on, it was six hours. And we got it down to about 4 in the end, mm. and it would take you an hour to get it off as well. I mean, you can do it. You can do it for two or three days at a time. But if I'm off to do a series for eight weeks, I think it's going to just drive me crackers. Mm. I know on um, uh, something like the Grinch movie, Jim Carrey wore his makeup every day and it was several hours and he had to wear it for about 70 days. And when I read that he's earning 10 million, I kind of think I can see why you'd want 10 million to do that. Let's go back to those musicals at the risk of seeming to repeat part of your Dennis Waterman sketch. But um, you had that enthusiasm for, for musicals in your mind, presumably from Oliver onwards. And it's never left you. And left to yourself, I gather, you do sing songs from the shows around the house, kind of. Left to myself, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and occasionally on stage. Yeah, I love doing that. And I live uh, sometimes in the US and also have a smaller flat here. Mm. And I live with a young couple here, a chap I was in Les Miserables with, because uh, I did it for three months in London, and he played Marius, and, uh, and, and his girlfriend, who joined the cast after I left. And we were talking yesterday, and he's now off doing films, and talking about how amazing it was, and you know, and I've done all right, but we were still saying yesterday that it was the highlight of our careers being in Les Miserables, that we would pinch ourselves, that we were actually in the show. Because growing up, I was obsessed with it, and the idea that I could ever be in it was, was beyond my dreams. But when that opportunity came, as we saw in that film, you really went for it. I mean, you wouldn't leave Cameron Macintosh alone. You were hammering on his door, give me that song. And so this was the Tenaldi song. Yeah, a few years ago, 
uh, Little Britain was on tour and Cameron came to see the show in Bristol and we were introduced to each other afterwards and I talked about Les Mis and he said, oh, well, come and sing for me sometime and so I did. And of course I, I said, oh, I'd like to play Javert and he went, yeah, that's not going to happen but uh, have a go at Master of the House and uh, yeah, I ended up playing it. They made that documentary about the event and among the points they made was how badly the show was received when it first came out. I was part of that and there to prove it in the documentary was an excerpt from Saturday Review, my I remember. BBC Two art show at that time. And there's me as chairman saying that I'd had the Victor Hugo book in the house for 20 years and never read it. Now it's even truer, it's 40 years or 50. Um, and there were Marina Warner, I think, and Tony Palmer. I mean, accredited intellectuals, not musical snobs, but everybody not enjoying the show. We saw the second performance, by the way, which was, you know, not a standard second performance. It was a very good performance in its way. But, and yet, as we all know, the whole world responded the other way. They loved it, as you do. And what's your feeling about that show now? Have well, you seen it since? I haven't been back to it since, but I'm going to. I'd narrowly missed it because my kids were singing songs from it and the, they had to see the show for, for a music exam, this was. But I didn't get to take them and I meant to. What didn't you like about it? I thought the music was sort of inert. It was all crotchets and quavers. It was, there was... Until you get to... Tenardier's song, I thought at the time, which I expected to be a great patter song because Herbie Kretzmer wrote it, and mm. of course he'd done Goodness Gracious Me and you know, all those things. Well, Herbert Kretzmer tells a story because he took a sabbatical from his uh, reviewing job, I think it was either the Mail or the Standard, and wrote the lyrics, uh, or translated the lyrics, and obviously wrote some new ones, Yes, came back to work and had to sit at the desk opposite uh, the reviewer who gave him a terrible review. Mm. And then just had to sort of sit opposite him. Yeah. But I think you could say with great assurance that Herbert Kretzmer had the last laugh. Well, of one. course he did, yes. You, you all did. But tell me why. What's it got that we did not see at that time, I that moment? I do think often sung through musicals are quite hard to digest. They are. There's no break. And sung through musicals often take a bit of a beating because in between the big rousing numbers, you get people sort of singing about needing the loo, but they're still singing it because yeah. everything is to music. It is hard to digest that show. But I think what it has, apart from being an epic story and with battle between good and evil, heroes and anti-heroes, love and all of that, it just has the best tunes and the best lyrics. I just think they will live on as long as Mozart, that one. And you can tell me that's a, a rubbish and that's fine but I'll stick to my belief. I think those songs, I Dreamed a Dream, even though that lyric, I Dreamed a Dream, is not the most gainly uh, of lyrics. Mm. But, I mean, what mm. else do you dream? Yes. Um, you don't dream a cat. No. But even so, I think overall, those, those tunes, those tunes, they just get you. And I think more than any other musical I've ever seen. Well, I've seen a lot of it since on, on DVD because I kids play it all the time so uh, I've been duly chastised and I'd love to hear Thenardier's song now as put over by you at that concert but I'm, I'm sorry to say A it's not detachable from the DVD and B it's been deemed too rude for Radio 2 there is That's a bit, not a, possible. A bit, There's a bit no... of vocabulary in there apparently oh, I, don't, I don't recall well that. the B word well yeah I don't know that sounds a bit like Bar Steward. Oh, that one, yes, yes. Well, that, I don't think that would uh, keep it out. Is there, an, is there a word that begins with S, a four-letter uh, word that begins might, with S? There might be, there might be. Anyway, it's been disallowed, isn't that a shame, but something equally prestigious for you. This is you with, with Alfie Bow, an impossible dream. How did that come about? Oh, uh, well, he was in the um, uh, uh, 25th anniversary as yes, well, yeah. and we met for a rehearsal 
six or eight months before the concert, and we got along. And he was in London uh, playing Valjean to kind of bed into the role. And he was just living on his own in some hotel room. And, and uh, I had a spare room and I said, oh, you know, I know how hard you work and how depressing it is to just go back to a hotel. Why don't you come and um, keep me company, you know, rattling around this house? What I didn't know was he's an amazing cook. Uh-huh. I put on a lot of weight, <laughs> Russell, a lot of weight. Uh-huh. He does the best Sunday roast of any man. I suppose most of us first saw you behind a drum kit in baby clothes as George Dawes, guardian of the scores, on Shooting Stars. And you were no age at all then. You're not 20 even, I or think just I was, about 20. I was 21 uh, when we did that first series, and I was still at university, actually. But I left before it was broadcast, which was definitely the right decision because, obviously, I went from uh, being, you know, that strange chap that walks along the street looking a bit like an old man, even though he's 21 with no hair, to being all of the above but on TV. And and it was a time where being on TV, you know, people didn't really have Sky yet. So uh, if you were on BBC Two, uh, that show would get sometimes as many as 9 million viewers. So it was yeah. a big show, Shooting Stars, and it did definitely change my life. And also people's responses to me were pretty wild because what I was doing on that show was so strange and a bit avant-garde. So people would come up, hug me, pat my head, shout at me, push me around. There was all sorts of strange responses. So I'm glad that I was living back at home, that I'd left university Uh, and because and, really I should still have been studying there at that time. Incidentally, about the alopecia thing, I meant to mention this. I was at school with a boy to whom this happened, rather later, early teens, but it happened to half his head. He had an invisible line down the middle of his head and half his hair fell out. Now, that was really strange. I think you had the better of the deal. because. Did it, he shave it off then, the other half? No, no he sort of minimised it, but he didn't abolish it, which just looked weird. But yeah. It was difficult. I mean, in some ways, uh, it's good because you get singled out a bit and that's quite a, can appeal to your ego, you know, yes. that people remember who you are. But in other ways, no matter what you do, everybody will remember it. Yes. You know, but... Yes. Uh, but shiny heads have become so fashionable oh, anyway. It doesn't now. matter how you come by they're, them, does They're it? fine now, yeah. And I don't... I mean, it was tricky in some ways because I'd get teased and bullied a bit. And also, I think, certainly going through puberty and even beyond, it, it can make you less confident. But I have to say, now it doesn't really... It's not even something I think about. And also, you know, I had a friend at school with cerebral palsy. And, I mean, that yeah. you know, that's... In the context of that, or in the context of many other things, it's nothing at all. No. So it's an inconvenience rather than a struggle, I have to say. Bob Mortimer said in the early days of Shooting Stars and George Dawes, in a way it's become a famous quote, but I don't really understand what it means. He's, he said, apparently, that you were the angriest person he'd ever met. Yeah, and I'm livid with him for saying <laughs> well, it. Well, it sounds very dramatic, but was he in any way right? Yeah, I think he was right. He saw my stand-up act after I'd been going for about five weeks, and it was this character, Sir Bernard, Um, this sort of old aristocratic pederast that I was doing at the age of 18. And it was an explosion, you know. I'm not sure it was particularly funny, but if you remember how strange Shooting Stars was and George Dawes, and actually that was a, a real dilution of what I was doing on stage. It was very, very peculiar. 
Um, it had its ranty side, didn't it? Something? Yeah, yeah I would. I kind of resolved to heckle myself before anybody heckled me. Yeah, it was very odd. I was eighteen years old, and I'd wear a wig and pretend to be seventy. It was very strange. Mm. Um, uh, Somebody uh, wanted you to do something with that character, George Dawes, but is it difficult to see how it could have gone oh, anywhere? Yeah, but you, at yeah. least you got Marjorie Dawes out. Of it. Oh yeah, we got Marjorie Dawes out of it, and um, and had the opportunity to work with Vic and Bob, and that was very exciting. But in terms of being angry, I was really angry. My, you know, my. My hair had fallen out. I was confused and despondent to some extent about being gay. Uh, you know, I felt unattractive and uh, felt like an outsider. Um, I'd always struggle with my weight and my dad had been in prison and my parents had divorced. And I, so, so, you know, it was an eventful upbringing. It's quite say. a collection of stuff. Yeah, and I don't, though. by the way, and I don't, I don't still carry any of that. And I don't have any resentment towards anyone and didn't at the time and don't now. Well, possibly one of the reasons why you don't carry it is that therapy came into this. Yeah, therapy it? helps. But also I just, I have a great relationship with my mum and my family and they're all lovely and, you know, we're in regular contact and yeah. we speak once, twice a week. I'll see, if I'm over here, I'll see my mum probably once or twice a week and we Skype all the time and, and my father, you know, he's not around anymore but we had a lovely, loving relationship and, and actually... You know, before my father died, everything was very amicable within, even between my parents. So, you know, it had been a period, but at that time I was frustrated, angry, trying to find my identity. And in some ways, even though I was doing comedy, like a lot of people of that age, 18, took myself quite seriously. Uh, it's strange for those two to go hand in hand. So that early stage act was furious and um, aggressive and anarchic. And actually... I think David Williams was the same, you mm. know? And so the first show that we did together in 1995 was, was terrifying, I think, for the audience. Anybody who dared heckle us, they'd have them on stage. We had no problem with humiliating ourselves, so we'd happily humiliate anyone else. As a viewer of TV, a consumer rather than a maker of it, though, which you had been all along, you don't miss that much, do you? I, as I understand it, you're a scholar not only of things that have been on, but things that never got on series that were made but were never shown. I think, again, it comes a little bit from living in the suburbs, but also just from lacking confidence socially as a youngster. I stayed in and I read and watched TV. And my childhood was just constantly my mother coming into my room. And there I am, a little chubby, pale lad, sitting on the edge of my bed eating a pot noodle. And my mum says, why don't you go and play outside? Mm. And, and I'm thinking, well, I could do, but there's a Malcolm and Wise tribute on TV. I, you know, why on earth would anybody want to go and play outside, even though I might have been nine? And, um, and so I didn't really understand that. And I did sometimes go and play outside. I had my gang and we'd ride on our bikes and do all of that. But um, no, I was pretty obsessive. Television was my friend. Mm. And I found a kinship with my late partner, Kevin McGee, because he was the same. He'd grown up in front of the television, and that was a language we shared. And I'm mistrustful, actually, of people, particularly of my generation, who grew up in the 70s and 80s, who didn't have that relationship with television. Why didn't you have that relationship with television? It was fascinating mm. uh, at the time, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. Now it seems uh, old hat but yeah. uh, I think that's just part of growing up, isn't it? Were you a Kenny Everett follower? Because yes. I, th I thought I felt his ghost hovering a little bit over rock profiles, for example. Yeah, I think, actually, I never thought of that, but I think that's a very fair thing to say. I loved Kenny Everett. 
I loved Harry Enfield. Uh, the, the Vic and Bob was a complete awakening for me. Very I, interesting to see Vic being Jim Moyer now and doing very straight parts on, in drama. And very well. Very well. And also, of course, a fantastic artist, and I've got a few of his pieces. And Forty Towers, The Young Ones, Blackadder. I mean, I'm like everyone else, really. I just like to sit at home and watch TV. Nothing wrong with that. And listen to stuff. Are you still fond of the Proclaimers, by oh, the way? I, it's ridiculous. I mean, it sounded when that was sort of announced as if you were sending us up, but no. it's true. No. When I say it's ridiculous, it's not ridiculous that I should like them. It's just ridiculous how much I love their work. And it's strange. Here I am, a middle-class gay Jew from London, and there they are, kind of these staunch, working-class, straight Scots. But for some reason... I'm absolutely in love with their music. It's so rousing. It's a little bit like when you hear Dex's Midnight Runners or Ian Jury and the Blockheads, that they just sing with their heart. And also, I've got to know them. I've directed a video, and I've just, over the years, spent you know, a fair amount of time with them. Written a sleeve note. I Written think. sleeve notes, yeah. and they're just very nice, intelligent, articulate, friendly, caring people as well. So that was one of the great thrills of my life, believe it or not, was being on tour with David Williams in Little Britain and going back to the Edinburgh Playhouse where I had been booed off in 1995, horribly, one of the worst evenings of my life, certainly of my career, and going back to that theatre and Craig and Charlie being in the audience coming along to watch the show. Mm -hmm. And it made that theatre a very happy place for me. You have no part at all in Scotland's story, but you love it just as Well, Edinburgh was a big... Uh, I'm, ah, listen, I'm not true. part that's of their true. story, but it was yeah. part of mine in that the Edinburgh Festival was where I appeared at, when I was 13 years old with the National Youth Music Theatre, and then again later on uh, as a stand-up, and, and then again with David Williams. So it was an important city to me. We must, of course, talk about Little Britain. It always struck me as weird that the popularity of the programme rose exactly in sync with the rise of protests against it. So you've got these two noises at once. You've got boos and cheers going on ever more loudly. Yeah, and people still celebrate the show and people still attack it. Yes. Did you ever feel it was cruel, was the word often used? Yeah. It? Well, it's a, weird, it's a weird thing for me because um, I don't watch the show now. Um, I recently watched one sketch from it out of interest. Uh, somebody was recommending it online and I, it was a link to something. I didn't know what it was and I clicked on it and it was a sketch from the first series. But my relationship with it personally feels quite distant actually now because, like I say, I don't sit and watch it and haven't done since we made them. Mm. So people's knowledge of the show is much better than mine. I think I can say in all good conscience that it was never our intention to appear reactionary um, and I don't think either of ourselves would have thought of ourselves as reactionary or right-wing you know that, that we thought the show was coming from a more left-wing viewpoint and a more anarchic viewpoint but I realize it has been considered to be cruel and reactionary but I have to hold my hands up because I was one of the two writers of that show. Well, it's hard to be too cruel when grotesquerie is all around us, isn't it? I mean, you were coming off the stage and you would meet girls with T-shirts and they'd hoist their T-shirts up, show their breasts and invite you to give your autograph on their breasts in permanent marker. And that kind of behaviour, you can hardly send it up, can you? The show was meant as a celebration. It was meant to be affectionate. And we have been accused of belittling, say, working-class people, but our intention was to have fun with all types. And th mm. there are plenty of posh people... 
and middle-class people who get it in the neck on that show as well. And we always saw Vicky Pollard, for instance, as a winner. And Andy in the wheelchair isn't disabled. I mean, he is just a particular fraud. But there's no way we were saying everyone in wheelchairs is a fraud or anything like that. But sometimes I'm proud of the show. Sometimes I'm not proud of it. Sometimes I think it's funny. Sometimes I think it didn't really work. I think hysterical praise of the show is probably too much. And I think mm. hysterical criticism of the show is probably too much as well. Yeah. And I think there are things in there that are good and things in there that are just all right. Yeah. And um, I'm quite distant from it now. Well, to play a lot of different characters as you did, you have to have a pretty sound, basic sense of of who you are underneath it all. And in in that way, I felt you were the the more stable partner of the two because David Wallens obviously is a supremely talented guy, but it all seemed to come on a shifting basis that made me sort of much more uneasy. I don't know why. Uh, Would that I d- be fair? I don't know about that. I mean, um, when you make a show like that, you have producers and directors and the BBC and all sorts of people and we share the achievements of the show and, we, and we're all responsible together, I think, for the failures of the show. I think we, we just wanted to make a funny show. We wanted to be on TV. Mm-hmm. You know, we'd grown up sort of comedically with the League of Gentlemen and seen them go past us and have formidable creative and commercial success. And we were delighted for them genuinely because I thought they were the best thing since sliced bread. And I really do think that first series of the League of Gentlemen changed the face Mm. of TV comedy in Britain. But we thought, well, the ship is leaving and we're not on it. Uh And then when our success did come, it came in a, a way far beyond what we thought it could have been in terms of scale. And it's not always easy to know what to do when you're in the eye of that kind of storm. Mm -hmm. And so looking back, yeah, there's things I'm proud of and and things I probably would do differently now. But I think it is a fair reflection of who we were then, where we were at. Do I think David is what type of person? Well, there was a sort of shifting basis psychologically, I felt, and probably emotionally under his the attack of his characters. And yours was more... Solidly grounded in some way. I don't, I don't know. know. It's a, I mean, it's a he, strange feeling. You know, Bitty, for instance, yes. and the guy falling in love with his friend's grandmother, and some of the more provocative stuff came from him. But what a writer he is! I mean, look yeah. at him now. Look at his phenomenal success as a children's writer. Yes, and indeed. he seems to be the natural successor to Rodin in that world, and that's no mean feat. No, it was a double act. I don't know, really. I don't, what was it suddenly lonely? I mean, you have nobody to bounce off and nobody to moan at? and No, because I've always worked with people and actually there's a guy that produced Little Britain on radio that we'd worked with on a show called Rock Profile who I then worked with on the Matt Lucas Awards who's now working with me on the new show Pompidou who'd co-created it with me and another guy, Julian Dutton. So I've never really worked on my own and not since I was a stand-up. I've always found people as stupid as I am to to, uh, you know, work alongside me. So I didn't feel like there was no-one else there, no. Mm. And the pace of work seems to have accelerated, if anything. You're all over the place. And as you say, you have to live in two places. You're in America too. Yeah, what I've done is I've set up a production company and I've had that now for a couple of years. And it's now at that point where 
I'm taking on a lot more staff. I've got a managing director. We've now got offices in Covent Garden and in Culver City in Los Angeles near the airport. And we're making shows now in Australia and in America and here in the UK. So I've become a little bit of a businessman, I suppose, to some extent, and an entrepreneur. And I spent a lot of time in the US with Simon Fuller, who's the guy that took David and myself over to do Little Britain for HBO with, you know, mixed results, let's say. I spent a lot of time with Simon and I think hopefully tried to learn a lot from him and how he works. Apparently and you always were a bit of a businessman because when you were on tours, for example, you'd be the one checking up that nobody was ripping off, you know, selling bogus tickets and that sort of thing. I suppose, uh, yeah, yeah, but I mean, it was something that interested me. I had this thing that happened early on in my career, which I won't go into details, but I had a deal that was done early on in my career where I felt I was really ripped off. Just one particular deal. And I was in something that did really, really well and made over a million pounds. And I got paid a thousand, which is obviously a thousand pounds, very nice. And there was no back end for me. And I was quite responsible for its success. And I was very frustrated about it. And I mean, grateful for the opportunity, Mm. but felt like okay, that's not going to happen again. If I'm a part of something that's successful, I should share in the success. Not exclusively share in the success, quite the opposite. And people who come and work for and develop shows with the company that I have, where viable, we share with backend and all those sorts of things, where a lot of companies don't do that. And it's interesting working in the States where the networks and the studios have so much ownership of what they call IP, intellectual property, which is considered the most valuable thing of all. And it's one of the things that I try and assert when I'm doing deals over there, which is uh, to try and retain as much ownership of that as possible. And it's weird because that's a long way away from just doing a bit of comedy. Mm. But at the same time, Paul McCartney was shrewd, wasn't he? Mm -hmm. Michael Jackson was shrewd financially, or seemed to be for part of his career. Well, there's no harm in it. I'm not, uh, not yeah, saying Yeah, yeah, I don't, is, I, I mean, yeah. I don't, I'm not ashamed of it. And, uh, you know, Peter Kay is incredibly shrewd. Yes. I'm not as shrewd as he is, <laughs> uh, but I'm not as funny as he is uh, oh, either. Okay. So there you go. This has been an enormous pleasure. Thank you, Matt Lucas. Thank you very much. My thanks also to my producer, Sarah Cropper. This was a Wise Buddha production for BBC Radio 2, online, on digital radio, and on 88 to 91 FM.